Let's go. Let's go. Oh, no. Do you want to? Sorry. I'll let you. I'll let you. Next one. I'm excited and I feel relaxed and I'm ready to party. Don't say sorry. You don't need to do that. You don't need to apologize. It's a fucked up female habit. You don't need to be sorry for anything ever. Can you guess what every woman's worst nightmare is? I don't have rage issues! I have nothing to prove to you. When I'm good, I'm very good. But when I'm bad, I'm better. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we told you so. I'm Karen Peterson, joined, as always, by Lauren Humphreys Brooks. <laughs> Hello. I think the big question, I think the big question is who directed Casablanca? Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's the big question for this week. Like, this is, let's just ignore everything else. Who directed Casablanca, Karen? Tell me. Well, I know it was Michael Curtis, but a lot of people <laughs> don't know that. <laughs> And I, I will say I did a very scientific poll of like eight people, um, mm -hmm. plus my parents. None of them knew who directed Casablanca. Several people had not seen Casablanca. One person did not know what Casablanca was about. Mm -hmm. So these are normal people, like not film people or anything like that. It's just, you know, your average. I, will, I won't say my friends are average, but they <laughs> they do not know cinema particularly. And I conducted a very scientific poll of two people both of whom are film people. One watches like YouTube videos and stuff like about film and not just like, not just like pop reviews and things, but like actual breakdowns of movies and stuff. The other used to work at the new Beverly cinema, cinema <laughs> the new Bev that is owned by Quentin Tarantino. Neither of them knew who directed Casablanca and one of them had not seen it. So yeah. <laughs> um, all I'm going to say is Taika's point is made. <laughs> so tcm nerds y'all need to sit down and calm oh my down. god <laughs> so everybody calm down and 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 as as came out actually today i think they the thr posted a number of the videos right that um like because they did a whole profile of him they did a whole interview and everything mm -hmm. he talks about like how indigenous people are getting shafted by hollywood and i find it very interesting that the major focus that everyone had early on was oh my god casablanca comment right like it's like oh i wonder if something else is going on here just a <laughs> little bit it's really interesting that all of the outlets are focusing on do you know who directed casablanca and not indigenous people are getting screwed over by the powers that be right exactly hmm. yeah <laughs> Mm. anyways yeah. so yeah taika was right listen to the man and remember him in several decades please <laughs> uh, also learn who michael curtis is he's got an interesting filmography <laughs> well and that's that's the thing so to to kind of tell people what the fuck we're talking about uh, Taika Waititi made a comment that um and, and it was in the context of talking about legacy right and talking about yeah. your legacy as a filmmaker and basically him saying I don't I don't care anymore I don't care if people remember my name right right and the example that he used was people you know Casablanca and you know who directed Casablanca um it's one of the most famous films in the world it's it's an incredibly influential film who directed it? Nobody knows, right? And of course, this this prompted everybody to be like, I know who directed Casablanca, and as as I do, as Karen does. But 
he he's he's right and i think that within the context of it it's essentially saying that the art is going to survive or not right the art may become obsolete the art may not become obsolete you know i don't think honestly when michael curtis made casablanca this was not there was not a thought to legacy there there was not a thought to like oh this is going to be remembered in a hundred years right it was it was a first of all it was a b movie um it is a b movie about that is is sort of pushing towards it's a propaganda film you know it's all of those things we've talked about it before the point of Casablanca is that it has remained timeless because it's a great film. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter, really, when you come down to it, it does not matter whether Michael Curtis directed it or not. Um, and and that's OK. It's OK to not know who directed Casablanca because the art is the thing that endures. Exactly. Which was his point. Yes, and exactly. Got mad and it was really silly. And it's like. Yeah, no, most people don't know and most people don't care and that's okay. What matters is the fact that you have friends who have not seen Casablanca and that seems like a failing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was like, well, you guys should watch Casablanca. It's a really good film, you Mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. It is. Anyway, yeah, so uh, listen to Tanka. Anyway, um, especially, yes, I agree. His, His comments about uh indigenous filmmakers indigenous projects all of that like he had a lot of very valuable things to say that people should pay attention to so go check out his uh his profile in the hollywood reporter and um yeah the the uh interviews as well so um speaking of the hollywood reporter (laughs) they broke a story yesterday Nikki Fowler, president of the Hollywood Critics Association, resigned. And um, I I don't know what to say about this um, because of some of the things that have happened in the hours after the announcement came out. Um, But what I will say is that it sounds like without knowing, I don't know specifically what happened and what was kind of the the final tipping point for her to leave. But it seems like a lot of the things that those of us who left last summer were complaining about are still, still issues are still happening. And uh, mm-hmm. all the, all the things that we said needed to change have not changed. And um, Nikki is the latest victim of that. So um, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what, what happens as a result um, the Hollywood Critics Association, just for those who either didn't hear about it before or don't remember, I was a member of this organization. I was on the board um, and for a couple of years I was involved and it's um, the the founder, Scott Menzel, he um, he built an organization that was supposedly about, you know, amplifying diverse voices, inclusivity um, you know, he wanted it to be 50% women. He wanted it to be a wide range of, of races and ethnicities, abilities, all of it. That's what he always claimed was, was his intent. And he wanted it to be about just a wide range of people, very diverse groups celebrating the love of film. What it turned out to be, um, was it's an organization where he wants to make a bunch of money by giving out awards and he's using 
um, diversity as his, um, his buzzword to try to, to get there and try to get attention. He's using, he's using people basically for his own purposes. And, uh, I, that is not slander. I have receipts to back all that up. (laughs) So um, last summer, what happened was one of the members of the group started asking some questions about some financial things. And she wasn't correct about everything. Like she was drawing some conclusions that were not, not totally accurate, but um, her broader point was spot on. And eventually Scott Feinberg from the Hollywood Reporter wrote a really in-depth article about what was going on. And he talked to another Scott who is a co-founder of the organization. And I mean, this piece gets into the details of financial impropriety, voting impropriety, all kinds of things that were going on at, at Hollywood Critics Association. And a lot of us left. There were, I think, 17 um, people who, who left right away and um, and it was like basically everybody at the trades left. So everybody who worked at Variety, The Hollywood Reporter, IndieWire, anybody under the Penske Media umbrella. And of course, there were some people who thought that Penske told them all they had to quit. No, they all just decided they wanted to leave. Like no, nobody told them they had to. And there were some others of us who left as well. Me, um, friends from other in- independent sites and things. And um, and they kept going and they did their film awards in January. We weren't sure what was going to happen. And it has, it has kind of been managing to survive. And um, this seems like it's probably another card being removed from this house of cards. It's about to collapse, but at the same time, I've seen Scott rise, you know, like fail up so many times and rise above things that he should be taken down for that, I just don't know. Uh, I just don't know where the edge is. I don't know where that final mm-hmm. point is where he is actually done and bounced out. So um, I hope that this helps. I don't know that I believe that this is the end of it. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll see. So that's just a kind of a quick update of what's going on there. Just a follow up to a story that we we were talking about last September. So mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, as I've said before, you know, I'm completely on the outside of this, right? So I'm just sort of listening, I'm reading articles, talking to you, things like that. Um, and and it does look like it's it's one of those things that's that's cascading, that like, you know, it's one thing that happens and then another thing and then possibly another thing and another thing. And that that's where, you know, like you say, at some point you hit the edge, you kind of go over. And, and there are a lot of different ways that that can happen, I think. But um I mean, it's it's better to expose this kind of thing than not, even if nothing materially happens initially uh, and and definitely to no longer be associated with an organization that behaves like this, because organizations do behave like this. There are a lot of them that behave like this. Um, and and there are people that claim to be allies that aren't basically or that are very, very selective in their allyship uh, and you got you always have to be careful but it's i don't know i i think you know probably in a couple of months we'll be like so let's 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 talk about what else happened today <laughs> yeah yeah well it's funny because i was actually talking with a friend last night and um 
I was just like, yeah, remember when this was all going down in in summer and um, Nikki became the new president. And I said and she was um, she was vocally defending the things that were happening. And I said, you know what? I, I, I was giving her the benefit of the doubt. I was like, listen, she's listening to Scott, who is a liar. Again, I have receipts to back that up. <laughs> um, and I said, she only knows his side of the story. She does not know because I haven't gone out and shared a lot of details. I could, I could just, oh man, I could have an epic Twitter thread of all the things that I know. And I'm just one piece of this giant puzzle. But um, I was just like, she, she's, she's not going on complete, uh, complete information. She doesn't have the whole story. And as soon as she gets in there and starts trying to work with him, and sees what's really trying to, and she starts to make the changes that, or tries to make the changes that we've been trying to push for, for multiple years, she's going to realize like, oh, this is, you know, this is all bullshit. He's bullshit. And she's going to leave. I said, within a year, she'll be gone. And so we were talking about it last night and she's like, oh my gosh, you were totally right. I was like, yeah, (laughs) Scott's not going to change. He's the same person he's always been. He will say just what he needs to do to convince people to get on board for a while. And then he will show his true colors again. And I knew that was going to happen. And that's exactly what happened. So, yeah. So this is where we're at. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, and so Nikki, I'm sorry that you had to learn it the hard way, but, uh, you know, it's just how it goes (laughs) sometimes. And, and I have to keep reminding myself that like she does, she still doesn't know my side of the story. And I don't know if she'd believe me even if I told her, although I hope now with her own experiences, she would. And there's a lot of people that are still on his side. And I still have to remind myself it's because they only have his side to go on. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't know how much of it I will ever share. Maybe I'll write my own essay. I don't know. Um, I've, I've considered it writing something for Citizen Dame, but I also am like, a big part of it is I just don't want to draw the attention, the enduring attention of something Mm -hmm. like that, just being out there forever. So, um, yeah, it was like years ago when I had my own personal blog, I wrote a story about something that had happened with, um, a local news reporter and I won't get into all the details there, but, and I, you know, I mean, I still am mad about a situation that happened and, But it was years, years later, people were still landing on my little stupid blog and my Mm -hmm. little stupid story because I had posted that. And anytime that they searched his name, that story came up. And so it's like one of those things where it's like, I want it. I want my side to be out there, but I also don't want this to be something that I have to deal with for years and years and years, you know? So it's, it's complicated and I'm not sure what the right answer is. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that this, this kind of this kind of thing can be hard to navigate, and I think ultimately it is it is about what what you want to have public, yeah. what you want to talk about, how much of how much of it you want to talk about, all of that, and that can be hard to navigate because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't. It could just be that like no one pays attention to it, or it could be that you get way too much attention. Exactly. <laughs> um, and and it can be difficult. So I mean, we we find that even in writing film reviews or mm-hmm. in writing editorials that sometimes you're like. Huh, you really latched on to that one. Okay. Like I I I still get comments, uh, usually offensive ones, on on a few editorials that I wrote. Again, like on on a, a film blog that I don't use anymore, stuff like that. It's just like, are you still lo- like <laughs> where are you 
finding this are you serious how deep are you digging to find this oh my gosh i wrote one time it wasn't a review it was just an essay about finding dory and i was really upset because one of the characters is clearly um a disabled character and um i didn't like the fact that i felt like she was being used as a punchline and it got posted on reddit and it never stopped. Like mm-hmm. I was getting the worst comments from just the most random people. And I got one about a year later and someone was like, are you still mad about this? I can't believe you're still mad about this. Get over it. And I was like, uh, this was a year ago. I'm over it. <laughs> Why aren't you? <laughs> it happens on Twitter sometimes too. I've had people respond to tweets from five years ago <laughs> and are just like, how dare you say it? Just like, I don't even remember what this was about. <laughs> Like, I, what are you talking about, dude? Mm -hmm. Just, just what? (laughs) What? Yeah, people are crazy. So anyway, so I don't know. But what I will say is anybody who has questions, you are welcome to DM me and I will tell you, (laughs) I have no problem sharing. I just don't know, like, if I want to share publicly. So Mm -hmm. yeah, completely understandable. Yeah. Uh, So we did get a comment from Michelle or question. Um, she says, first, I apologize if you already discussed, but since I don't, I didn't discover this until recently, it would have gone over my head if you already talked about it. I wondered if either of you had watched Firefly Lane. My sister discovered it a couple of weeks ago and binged it and told me to give it a try. I ended up watching the series in about three days. Firefly Lane is the show on Netflix. I believe it's on Netflix. I have not watched it. Have you? Sorry, I was just looking it up. Uh, no, I, I have I've not seen this one. Um, so yeah, it's on Netflix. I've heard good things about it, and it's been kind of on my list for a while. But I just, yeah, I just haven't gotten around to it. I know a new season recently came out, so um, I will give it a chance. Though I will, I will check it out. Yeah, starring Catherine Heigl. Oh, that's nice mm-hmm. to see. Yeah. I'm glad that Catherine Heigl is doing things. I think Catherine Heigl has been unfairly besmirched, I think. Oh yeah. Big time. Um o- over the years. I think there's there's a lot, there's there's a lot to be discussed about what happened to Catherine Heigl, but I'm glad to see that she is coming back. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But no, unfortunately, Michelle, we have not seen it, so can't can't really comment on it. Yeah. But I'm glad that you have watched it. That it I actually I'm really glad that it's like a, such a bingeable show. So that's good. I I had four shows all end forever this last week. And um and then also Yellow Jackets is over for who knows how long until the writer's strike and the apparently acting strike are over. Um so um uh yeah so now i'm like okay i gotta find some new stuff to watch so um and catch up on so yeah all right so uh this week we wanted to we thought it'd be fun to talk about um um stephen king adaptations and the reason is because there was a new adaptation of very old stephen king story in theaters this weekend that is the boogeyman which is adapted from a short story that he 
published, I think, in 1976 in his his uh, Night Shift collection. It was his first his first published collection of short stories, and um, this was one of the creepier ones in that in that collection. Um, I actually went and saw the Boogeyman last night, and I have to say, I don't know if I enjoyed the movie or not. But what I did enjoy was all the teenagers that I was surrounded by shrieking and (laughs) it just, it turned it from a horror movie into a comedy. It was so funny (laughs) and very entertaining. So um, if you want to see the movie, but you're a little scared, I I recommend finding where the teenagers are going and go watch it with them because they will entertain you. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think that I enjoyed the movie. I, I think I did. Um, Sophie, what's her name? Sophie Turner from uh, Yellow Jackets. Actually, she plays. Um, she plays the young. Um, oh my gosh, all their names are are escaping me right now. Um, she plays the young Juliette Lewis character. Um, oh, Natalie. Natalie, thank you. It's only been a week and I've already forgotten. They're all dead to me. No, (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. Uh, But anyway, I still haven't watched the last episode. Don't say anything. Oh, I won't say anything. Um, (laughs) But oh, Sophie Thatcher. Sorry, not Sophie Turner. Sophie Thatcher. Uh, Anyway, she she stars in this along with Chris Messina, who I didn't notice Chris Messina until um, Birds of Prey. And now I just adore him. (laughs) And um and then vivian lyra blair is the other kid in that um it's it's uh it's an interesting movie it's a lot of fun it's a pg-13 horror so there's not a lot of blood and guts or anything like that but um but it's definitely one of those creepy like there you know clearly there's a monster or something in the house but you don't see it because it doesn't you know it doesn't appear when there's light and stuff but um what i what i found was a little bit of a um less what i found was uh, the choice that i didn't like was that eventually you do see the monster and to me any monster that they create for a movie is generally going to be less scary than my own imagination so i think actually showing what it looks like kind of kind of made it a little bit mm-hmm. more like eh, I wish they hadn't done that although I do think the creature effects were interesting and, and pretty cool but it definitely to me is way scarier when you just let it be this thing that you never can really see so yeah but it was a fun movie and I was entertained Um, but because that's out in theaters now what we wanted to do is talk about some of the other many many Stephen King <laughs> adaptations um that exist in the world some there are multiple adaptations there's a whole lot that are apparently coming at some point um and you know so he also so stephen king he started publishing short stories i think when he was in high school like in in magazines and stuff but his first novel was carrie in 1974 and um from there he like that uh it kind of became an unexpected bestseller and led to the movie carrie in 1976 which we're going to talk about in a minute 
Um, but it, it really that was what launched his career as well. And he's mm-hmm. done so many books. Like he was publishing multiple books a year. He's got multiple collections of short stories, and so many of his his works have been turned into um into feature length movies, short films, TV series, limited series. Like I mean, he's just been adapted by in all kinds of ways. Um, uh, I think there's even a stage production of one of his works, but I can't remember what. He also infamously or famously, or I don't know which word is more proper there, but um, he has a, a policy, I guess, the the dollar deal where anybody who any aspiring filmmaker can adapt one of his short stories for one dollar. Like they can have the rights to adapt it for one dollar, which I think is an awesome thing that he does. So yeah. um, so a lot of his works have been adapted by by film students and things. Um and things that was such a weird by film students <laughs> and, and and aspiring it's like, it's like you know that thriller song from last week <laughs> oh man maybe recording at 8 a.m on saturdays is not the best <laughs> use of my brain um <laughs> i think it's great i Thank i think you. that it, it makes it makes things that much more fascinating <laughs> Thank you. He did also um, direct one film. It was um, based on his own short story, and he wrote and directed a film. Have do, do you know which one it is? I don't. Nineteen eighty six. It was a movie called Maximum Overdrive. Oh yes, I think you mentioned <laughs> this one before. <laughs> I have not seen this film. Uh- <laughs> Um, yes. Yeah, so it, uh, it stars Emilio Estevez, Pat Hingle, Laura Harrington, uh, Yardley Smith. And it's basically this story where, um, all of the machines, all the machines come to life in the whole world and they start attacking humans. And most of the movie takes place at this truck stop. And uh, so all these people like diners, the people who work there, they're all just kind of like a couple of truckers. They're all just kind of stuck in this truck stop. They can't leave because if they do, the cars and the the trucks outside will murder them. And uh, so they're trying to find a way out of it. And um, it's a terrible movie, but it's so entertaining at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well that that is true for some for a number of Stephen King adaptations. That is very true. Yeah, yeah. So we did choose a couple of very specific ones, but just before we get started on on diving into those, what are a couple of your favorite uh, adaptations? Well, I see. I have a very weird relationship with Stephen King, um, and I think the part of this is because he was probably one of the first horror writers, other than like Edgar Allan Poe. Mm-hmm. Uh, um that i read and i read a lot of his stuff way too young i read pet cemetery when i was too young i read misery when i was too young uh i read gerald's game when i was way too young <laughs> oh, um, and so as a result i think that like i have a very contentious relationship with him i a lot and and this is true i've i have started and not finished so many stephen king books and one of the problems that I have um, with with him as a writer is that he's a, he's he's great at developing heart. He's great at developing tension. There's a point in almost every Stephen King novel for me where it just becomes kind of sickening 
if that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. I actually feel nauseous mm-hmm. and it's not a pleasant, oh, this is scary kind of thing. It's just more like, I just don't like this. This isn't fun anymore, you know? Um, and and other than The Shining, that has happened to me with every single Stephen King book I've read. Yeah. Um, so like there, there are quite a number that like I started reading It, put it down. I started reading Salem's Lot, put it down. Um, I I felt nauseous through most of misery. <laughs> I, I felt the <laughs> same thing with with Pet Cemetery. And there's so there's something about his writing, and I can't, I could not tell you exactly what it is. There's just there's a moment where it just becomes too much for me mm-hmm. um, as a reader. And I think that that's also true in some ways for some of the films of his work. That there's there's a point which it just turns over into nastiness. I think the most successful films of his work are the ones that kind of pull back on that and that become more less, you know, Stephen King adaptations and more their own kind of entity. And I think that that's definitely true for what is probably the the greatest Stephen King adaptation, which is The Shining from 1980, Um, which, you know, infamously King doesn't like. Right. <laughs> um, because it is very different from the book. And and there are things that I kind of wish that the film did, that the book does, that the book does. Um, there are things that like I, I think that the film actually improved on in certain ways. But The Shining from 1980 is very much its own animal mm-hmm. uh, that takes as King's work as its inspiration, but kind of goes in a in a different direction to it. So. Um, yeah, so to, to say, like, oh, what's your favorite Stephen King adaptation? I love the first chapter of It, which we're going to talk about. I deeply enjoyed the It miniseries, <laughs> uh, even though it is not like a, a great film. It is so much fun. I, I love the, the Shining from 1980, I think is probably the best as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. I So I've read a lot of his books and I have finished all of them, I think. Um, and like, I, I don't know what it is for me. I just have a really hard time, like stopping a book, you know, once I, once I'm into it, it's like, I will not let myself read something else until I finish. (laughs) So sometimes that means that I don't read any books for like six months because I just can't bring myself to finish that one. It's just a weird problem that I have, but, um, but, uh, one of the things that I find so fascinating about him is like you say, I mean, he, he is very good at building tension of laying the foundation for these really fascinating stories. Mm -hmm. I remember watching the movie secret window uh, years ago with Johnny Depp. And one of the running like repeated lines throughout that is all that matters is the ending. And I just found so much irony in that statement because so many of Stephen King's novels have the worst endings. <laughs> it's true. Oh God, it's so true. Well, and and I believe that he is one of the, I, this is something that I've heard. I don't know how accurate it is, but I believe that he's one of those writers who he just writes, he does an outline. Mm-hmm. And you can tell, Stephen, yeah. you can mm-hmm. tell. And you know what? Props to you for being so successful and right. not outlining because for for truly yeah like the the i think that you're absolutely right like one of the reasons why i started reading salem's lot was because i loved the idea like i was like oh this is great this is a great idea i was like yeah we're building up and then it's just like well this is just unpleasant now like this mm-hmm. it reaches a point where it's like this is this i'm uncomfortable it this doesn't work anymore it 
the f- it it has the stupidest fucking ending. Oh my god, like so it's stupid. so dumb. It just is so um, stupid. And and it's so it's it is it's one of those things where you're just like, well, I'm going to dedicate myself to this because I know that three quarters of it are going to be good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, e- exactly. So it's it's such a such an interesting thing. I I agree that I do think overall. And, you know, I mean, it's sad that 43 years later, still nothing has been as good. But I do think that his best, the best uh, adaptation of a Stephen King um, work is The Shining by Stanley Kubrick. Mm -hmm. Um, We talked a little bit offline about um, Misery, which I think is really well done. I think Kathy Bates and James Caan are both phenomenal in that movie. It's deeply uncomfortable. It's very unsettling. But um, but I think as a film, which was directed by Rob Reiner, I think it's good. And I think that the performances are just like, oh, mm-hmm. so, so, so good. Um, I I think that that's one of the cases where the movie is better than the book. Um, there are things that happen in the book that are just it's it's so ridiculous that it's just like, Stephen, what are you doing? Um, and I think that the the movie definitely improves on some of that stuff. Um I also enjoy some of his non-horror things like Stand By Me, um, I think is a, yeah. it's a great, great film. Also by Rob Reiner. <laughs> um, yeah. We don't need to talk about the Shawshank Redemption. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Which is fine. It's a fine film. It's it a is. fine film. I don't know why white dudes are so obsessed with it. I mean, don't we? <laughs> I think we do. We I do. think we kind of We do. know. Yeah. We know. We know, but still, still, it's like, guys, calm down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so let's talk about a couple of specific ones that we that we chose, starting with Carrie from 1976. Um, this was directed by Brian De Palma. Um, and the screenplay was adapted by Lawrence Cohen. And it, of course, stars Sissy Spacek as Carrie White. Um, who is the lead character. She is 16. She is relentlessly bullied at school and is also abused by her mother, who is played by Piper Laurie. And um, the movie also has, uh, it's just, it's, I, I hadn't watched it in a long time. So I had forgotten that like Betty, mm-hmm. Bu- I, I had no memory that Betty Buckley was in this and Amy Irving and Nancy Allen. So it was, it was like, Oh yeah. And then also that is the very first um, film role for John Travolta. So it was just kind of funny um, and, and a little bit interesting to see those performances again that I had kind of forgotten about, but overall <laughs> the movie let's let's talk about (laughs) let's talk about the movie lauren what are your thoughts on carrie this so i have again with the contentious relationship so i the performances are fantastic in carrie i think sissy spacek is great Mm -hmm. piper laurie is great um the whole like structure of the film and everything like i i think that the cast does a great deal to a film that's basically schlock and it is schlock um it it has one of the things that I don't like about Carrie is first of all Brian De Palma and I you know I would never necessarily accuse any filmmaker of being a misogynist themselves this is a very misogynist film 
And in in many ways, like probably the story itself can be accused of misogyny. One of the issues that King has definitely isn't his um, an not understanding, understanding how female bodies work. Yeah, an understanding. No, an understanding of women, not just female bodies, but <laughs> understanding of like relationships between mm-hmm. women. Like it's very much it's like he thinks of women as something else like a a, Mm -hmm. it's very othering and i don't think that it's deliberate necessarily but he just does not process what like he does not process what to do with female characters a lot of the time yeah um and that's true for a lot of his of his stories um and i think that one of the problems with carrie is that you've got a writer who doesn't understand women and you've got a director who doesn't understand women and you're producing a film that is very and a story that's very much focused on women and the relationships between women and the horror of women and all of those things. Um, one of the things that that bugs me a little bit about Carrie, I remember the first time I saw this with it was in college and it was on Halloween night and we rented Carrie, the DVDs of Carrie and Suspiria. <laughs> and these were the two films that we watched. And with Carrie, I remember one of my flatmates but, like we got to the end, it's just like, well, that wasn't scary at all. That that was like, and it's true. There is almost no horror in oh, a yeah. good portion of Carrie, right? And then you get to kind of the big famous bloodbath at the end. And one of the problems with that, I think, is is that it's, and this is not a fault of the film necessarily. It has been so parodied, mm-hmm. and has been used in different contexts throughout film now and like I, I always like go back to things like the simpsons and stuff like that that use like images from carrie that at a certain point you're like well it's it's not it isn't scary anymore it doesn't feel like this grand culmination it's just sort of like again it's schlocky it feels like a very schlocky film and the only thing that really saves it from being bad are the performances are sissy spacek and piper laurie in particular mm-hmm yeah so it's yeah. a distressing film in a lot of ways it's one of those that it gets built up i think so much that when you actually watch it it's like this isn't that good mm-hmm. that's that the thing sense. yeah like so the first time i um i watched the full movie i was probably in college as well and i remember thinking like this is this is what this is because i had seen I had seen a very small part of it when I was like a little kid and I, I wasn't supposed to be watching and I wasn't supposed to be in the room. And I saw um, it was the scene where her mother locks her in the closet and she's like panicking. And um, at that point I was terrified of small spaces. I was terrified of the dark. So like, I was just like, I'm out of here. And so um, to me, that image had stayed with me for years. And so I thought this was a terrifying movie that you know was really all about this this girl being like locked in tight spaces and stuff and and um and so i didn't really understand what it was and so then when i finally did see the full film when i was actually an adult and i was old enough to watch it um i was just like oh this is not at all what i thought it was it's really almost never scary at all um and and that's okay it doesn't have to be um, but when you see, but when you see it end up on all these horror lists and it's just like, oh, there's so much better horror out there. I don't know. I don't know what people are thinking, but I think people tend to build this up in their minds of something more or at least just different than it actually is. Um, 
but I was rewatching it this week and I did not remember the entire opening. I mean, I remember the mm-hmm. opening scene of Carrie getting her period and freaking out about it, which is why I made the comment about Stephen King, not understanding female bodies. But um, cause in the book it's described as like, for my memory, I could be wrong, but it, I mean, it's described as like kind of gushing and stuff. And it's like, yeah, that's not, that's, that's not, not how that works. That's not what happens when you get your first period. No, no. Um, I mean, maybe, I, I don't know. Maybe it does to some women and like, I'm just, but I've never heard of it. No. Yeah, exactly. If it does, it's exceptionally rare, but, um, but yeah, but I didn't, I didn't remember the entire opening scene of like this voyeuristic view, like this mm-hmm. journey through a teenage high school girl's locker room and sexualizing Carrie White and by extension, Sissy Spacek in the shower and not just like, oh, it's the teenage girl taking a shower and then, oh my gosh, this just happened to her. It's like, it's, it's like porn movie aesthetic. Mm-hmm. shower scene and i was just like what the fuck is this brian de palma this is a <laughs> high school like what are you doing and so yeah well yeah and i think that the whole movie has that that sensation of being very it's very male gazy right mm-hmm. it's very um it is very voyeuristic which is one of the it's one of the things that the palma kind of specializes in but i i think that it you know in some ways that that opening scene could be interesting in the sense of like to turn this natural function of the female body um, into something that is horror movie-esque, that is more like, you know, so we're, we're so used to seeing the, you know, the psycho, the woman in the shower getting stabbed and the blood running mm-hmm. down the drain and all that. And to kind of then use the, the concept of menstruation as a part of that and like as this part of this horror movie trope. But yeah, it feels very uncomfortable it feels very unnatural in a lot of ways yeah um and and it is it's the sexualization of of teenagers it's a sexual and and also of just like i i again and some of this is me bringing in my own experiences from kind of the outside just like does anyone like i know the that that particularly um you know it used to be the that girls would not would very often not get their first periods until they were 15 or 16 um, that seems to have become less and less oh, common. Yeah, the average age has plummeted. Yeah. But, yeah. So, so this this is definitely possible. But at the same time, the the reaction of the other girls, like all of it, is just like, I don't think that this is this doesn't feel natural to me. This doesn't feel realistic in any way. It feels very much of like this male terror of the female body. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that kind of combination of that that desire for the female body and the horror of it, which yeah. again could be very interesting, but it doesn't feel like the film is interrogating that at any level. It's not interested in actually exposing those layers. It's interested solely in the in the superficiality of it, right? Which I think is is overall the problem that I have with it, and why Brian De Palma was not the right person. Well, I mean, based on. <laughs> the fact that this is written by Stephen King, maybe he was the right person to realize King's vision. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I like, this is, this is a story that if you're going to tell a story about a teenager in these circumstances, a teenage girl in these circumstances, you need someone that can treat that with some empathy, which I think that there are some, some moments throughout the film where they think that they're being empathetic to her, but they're really, 
they're really not because so much of it is filtered through the the male gaze. Yeah, and there, there's even, you know, there's an indulgence in the mean-spiritedness. So part mm-hmm. of it is about, is about this girl being bullied, right? Yeah. Um, and it does feel like that the film the film itself is almost bullying her, that it, it's, there's an enjoyment. And this is, again, one of the problems that I have with some of Stephen King's work. There's an enjoyment of suffering. Yeah. And of putting the characters through pain and horror and this this horrific terror, right? Um that again doesn't really get interrogated i think it's interesting if it could have been but you you have to have a better director and you definitely have to have a director who is more willing to actually unpack that and and honestly maybe it it might be something that's just hard baked into um king's novel and into his writing because like i say there there is the sensation that at a certain point he likes hurting his characters Mm -hmm. And and wants us at some way to to enjoy this kind of voyeuristic suffering, and it's it there's a level of sadism that gets can get to be very very uncomfortable. Yeah, it's true. Now it's been a while since I read the book, but my memory of it is that there's not a lot that's actually just like narrative structure. It's a lot of, um, you know, like there's newspaper articles, there's testimonials of of kids that survived the high school um burning and stuff that are are sharing their stories so it's it's not like a linear narrative structure um to my memory i could be wrong there could be sections of it that are but um but yeah it so it's it's interesting to me that de palma and and lawrence cohen who adapted it um that they made the choices that they made because I feel like that's not part, not all of it is part of the source material. So it's like, it just really lends to Brian De Palma really is a raging misogynist. And also, um, you know, I, I, the grown up me who has seen some shit also has some questions about his treatment of teenage girls. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah. What are some, let's talk about Piper Laurie. What are some of your thoughts about, about Mrs. White? I see, again, I think that her performance is terrifying and it is, it is perfect for that kind of holier than thou um, evangelical figure. Mm-hmm. And so her treatment of her treatment of, of her daughter is so terrifying, but it it is absolutely believable. <laughs> um, and and yeah, I, I really liked I, I really like how uh, how Piper Larry is like is a, a mad manages to evoke that. And I think that her, the balance between her and Sissy Spacek is really good. Um, that Spacek is so kind of receding. She, she's a shrinking violet kind of figure. Um, and, and Laurie's performance on the other side of it is like so domineering. Like it is a very good evocation of that sort of abusive mother and mother daughter relationship. Um, and, and I think that it's very much founded in, in Laura's performance. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I, um, I, there are, there are things about the way that the character itself is written that I was like, um, this feels a little bit more over the top than it needs to be. But I think that the Lori really sells it. I think that, um, she does ground it in something that feels mm-hmm. real. Like there's a scene late in the movie where it's after, I think it's after the high school 
incident after the prom when um, Carrie comes home and she just wants her mom to hold her. She just wants to, to be comforted. And her mom just starts going on that. Like I should have, I should have killed him. I should have killed myself. And, and just, she has a, a monologue there that it's like, um, it works because of the way that she delivers it, because there's just so much power and, um, and like devastation and experience and anger and just so many different emotions all rolled into that that one scene and i think that it only works because piper laurie does such a great job of delivering it mm-hmm. so, and if oh sorry well i was gonna say it, it feeds into that kind of I, I was thinking about the, the extremity of the performances it feeds into that kind of element of this being sort of a b movie in a lot of ways mm-hmm. um and elevate I'm going to say an elevated B movie, uh, <laughs> um, but, but it is the, it's like the performances themselves kind of lift the material a little bit. And, um, but it's very much in that kind of the schlocky slightly, slightly, as you say, slightly pornographic almost um, creation of the, the world that these characters inhabit. And, mm-hmm. and I think that Laurie's performance sort of feeds into that. Mm-hmm. Um Yep, that's all. Yeah. Okay, so um, the next one that we wanted to to talk about is The Shining from 1980, which, of course, was directed by Stanley Kubrick. And, um, oh, there's a lot to say about The Shining. So, um, uh, first of all, Kubrick co-wrote it with Diane Johnson. And I think that that is an important point. Um, I don't know how much Kubrick shares uh, shares things, so I don't know how how much of it was Diane's and how much of it was his. But I think that having a female voice in there actually really is significant and matters. Mm-hmm. But um, but as we mentioned, um, this was infamously <laughs> hated by Stephen King, who uh, felt like his Jack Torrance was um, was just kind of destroyed a little bit um that his intention for his novel was not conveyed in the film um and something that happened that year that um i really just it's mind-boggling um the razzies shelly duvall Mm -hmm. it's the first year of the razzies i believe and shelly duvall gets gets worst actress and it's just that's something that even though she continued to work for many years the experiences for her surrounding The Shining and not just that, but the way that people have reacted to her performance in what I think is a really great performance um, followed her for many years and really, really caused her some some problems that um, and and, you know, eventually a breakdown, which I think is just such a tragedy of of this production. And, um, and it's really part of the reason I mean there's a lot of reasons why that was horrible for her and that she, you know, she shouldn't have had to suffer that. But also um, I think a lot of people overlook the fact that this is actually a really great performance in a character that um, really could have been written more fairly in the book. <laughs> so. Um, yeah. I, I, I was shocked honestly when <laughs> I, cause I was, I was reading up on some of the production history and I know about like, you know, the, Kubrick was notoriously perfectionist 
notoriously abusive to his actors in a lot of ways. Um, and Shelley Duvall definitely kind of bore the brunt of a lot of that, uh, in, in part also just because of the character that she was playing. Um, her, she is so necessary mm-hmm. for this film to work. Her performance is so necessary and her reaction. So in, in rewatching, I just finished rewatching it uh, again last night. I've seen it numerous times, but the, you know, there's so much focus on Jack Nicholson, her terror when he finally completely breaks, right? When, and you get that fantastic scene that's just sort of builds with her holding the baseball bat and him coming after her. Mm-hmm. And the, the thing that starts out as kind of this, argument discussion that then turns into you know he is absolutely insane and he's going to try to murder her right um that whole kind of exchange between the two of them her reaction to it and the and the way that she kind of portrays this woman absolutely like terrified but also trying to survive and trying to save her child is so good it is, I am so offended on her behalf that anyone would be like, oh, this is a terrible performance. Mm-hmm. Like, what fucking movie were you watching? Yeah. Um, she and and it's necessary. It's necessary. Like, it's so natural to how would you actually react if if you were trapped in a hotel with your husband who has lost his mind and is threatening to like murder you and your child? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and the whole kind of the, even before that, the whole use of like the undercurrents of the fact that he's probably been, he's definitely been an abusive father. There is an abusive nature to this relationship. And I think that someone, um, some critic described it as uh, a woman who has seen the absolute worst of her husband and is terrified of seeing it again. And that's essentially what we're getting throughout, particularly throughout the second half of the film in her performance. And it's so effective, but it's it's really understated and it gets kind of subsumed in a lot of ways by Nicholson's performance because he's so big and extreme. Um, but she is necessary to balance that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because, um, yeah, I've seen this movie a bunch of times too. And um you know, when you, when you've watched films and if you're really paying attention, you find something new every time, which was the case for me this time. I, uh, one of the things that I, I was really paying attention to on this rewatch, because I don't think that it's been a while since I've seen it. And I don't think that I've really watched it since I learned some of the real details about Shelley's Shelley Duvall's experiences. But, um, so this time I was really watching, I was kind of like more focused on her specifically and the way that she um, when Danny in the very beginning, before they ever go to the hotel, they're just in the apartment. And when Danny has collapsed and she's called the doctor to come in and she's describing the first time that Danny experienced Tony and mm-hmm. um, the first time that she'd heard about him and and the injury that Danny suffered and she's, she's describing what happened and the way that she does that. And most of that scene, the camera doesn't break away from her. It's, it's like Mm -hmm. kind of all in one shot, not the scene, but the, but this particular um, part of it. And it's just so it's, it's so perfectly performed because it is this woman who has tried to convince herself that what really happened wasn't 
abuse, but clearly it was, and it's never going to happen again. He's promised he won't, but she knows, but she's also doesn't want to give that away to the doctor. You know, she doesn't want Mm -hmm. to, to give ammunition, I guess, or, or say anything negative about her husband. And it's just like, there's just so much power in such an understated moment. And Duval carries that through the whole film. And like yeah. increasingly as she becomes more um uh more afraid, more terrified, more desperate to get out of this situation because she and her son will die. Um she she builds on that, but but I like even when she's becoming increasingly hysterical, it's never um it never feels unreal it never feels Mm -hmm. like like a ridiculous performance and i just i think that the way that she has been treated not only by her experiences making the movie but the way that she has been treated by people for so many years over a performance that it's like i mean it's it's so unbelievably good and i just it's like justice for shelly duvall man like she she's incredible in this movie and it starts from her very first scene yeah, and and it, in rewatching the film this time, I felt there's always kind of a stagey quality to a lot of it. It's so aesthetic, like, and it's very much a Kubrick film, right? But the way that he constructs shots, the the use of the the moving, the roving camera, the use of the, um, uh, I think he also made use of Steadicam through a number of the shots. But so the way that the camera moves throughout the hotel versus you know the very compact scenes in their initial apartment at the at, in the early part of the film and the um and the apartment in the hotel um her she is prized in those scenes in the apartment right and we're seeing kind of it, it's it's again it goes it goes back to that that comment about oh, oh she's trying to deny what is actually happening mm-hmm. but when she finally accepts it when she's like okay she had, I have to survive. I have to protect my child. Her reaction, she doesn't melt down completely. She doesn't just like go, you know, curl up into a fetal position and wait for her husband to kill her. Right. She has this intensely, you know, despairing reaction, which is completely believable. But at the same time, it's like, okay, I'm going to save my son. I'm going to get my son out. Um, you know, the, the there's the this famous scene in the bathroom, which is so well known because of Jack, you know, smashing through the door and um and all of that. But everything that happens within that scene is her pushing Danny out the window and trying to crawl through and not being able to, and then telling her, telling her son, run. Mm-hmm. You know, she's the the entire performance is like, I have to protect my son, I have to protect my child, and I have to survive in order to protect him. Yeah. And that runs throughout the entire film. I one of the the best moments actually is um, after Danny has been in in the room two thirty seven and he's got this mark on his neck and his shirt is torn and everything. The and it's it it is definitely the point where Jack probably finally snaps right that mm-hmm. that point where his self pity completely ignites and the hotel basically captures him at that at that moment. Um, when she sees her son having been injured and is immediately like, we are the only three people in the hotel. It has to, it has to be him. Her reaction to that is just like, 
I I mean, at, the, at that moment, just like, she's going to fucking kill you, dude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, she is not joking. And her immediate response is, I have to take my son away and I have to protect him. Yeah. Um, and she she shows that throughout the entire film, that that is like she's trying to make everything OK. And it's in a situation where everything isn't OK and it's not going to be OK. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other thing I find interesting about about the character um, of Wendy is the fact that like the the hotel, obviously, we know is haunted Um and Danny has this this shine and he has the ability to to see ghosts. He has the ability to communicate telepathically. Um, and then Jack kind of gets taken over by by these entities too. Wendy never does. Um she yeah. she doesn't she doesn't fall like I mean in on the one hand you can say, okay, she doesn't have this ability like Danny does, which is fine, but she also doesn't fall victim to the hotel and to mm-hmm. all of the things that it does and she's not like she is sane unlike jack you know she's not someone that it can prey on it gets yeah. to her through them but it can't get to her through her own mind yeah the i the the whole dynamic of like what the hotel wants and and what the ghosts want what is supposed to happen and it which is obviously up de- upended by Danny's ability like basically the hotel the hotel is like uh, Danny is a problem basically mm-hmm. essentially and he needs to be eliminated what they want really is Jack and they want him to to kill his family right um and to kind of be completely consumed by the hotel itself uh and and Wendy's Wendy is kind of the the stable center of that. And in fact, at one point, I think that um, one of the ghosts, I think it's Floyd, says, uh, "No, not Floyd. Um, uh, it's the the previous caretaker who murdered his family." Mm, um, Grady, and who yeah. Then, yeah, Grady, um, and and says like, you know, it your wife is stronger than we thought she would be basically Mm -hmm. your wife is resisting you your wife seems to be more capable than we imagine you know that kind of thing and it's this kind of pressure that is being brought to bear on jack to be like you have to be a man and it's all of those elements of like this incredibly misogynist violence yeah um but it's it's all kind of even though danny in some ways is the danger because danny can see what's happening uh she's the real danger because she's like you say she's the one who stays sane she's the one who actually has the capacity to resist everything that is going on in the hotel mm-hmm. um and to survive and to be the thing that kind of defeats jack yeah in, in his madness right one of my favorite moments is um is actually right before everything starts like kind of right at that that edge right at that tipping point it's when wendy finds the manuscript and she starts to mm-hmm. to see what's on those pages. And at first, she's just like, what the fuck? And then she's flipping through and she's seeing that it's the same thing on every page. And then it's like all these different. And as she's going through this giant stack of pages that he's been writing for months, she uh, she becomes more and more um, panicked, more um, more afraid as she's realizing like, my husband is insane and then you see then the camera moves to this shot from behind her 
and you can see that oh she's been caught like jack is there and just the way that all of that is staged it's it's her performance it's the camera work it's it, it, just everything about that moment is so good and it's like mm-hmm. this is right at that edge of where now everything's going to start to 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 go crazy now mm-hmm. and it's so good from 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 shelly duval yeah oh any other thoughts on The Shining? Like, what else should we talk about? I mean, there's just there's so much to talk about when it comes mm-hmm. to The Shining. Don't want to spend all all time on it. Um, I I just you know just just from a, a completely cinematic standpoint, the way that it's staged, the way that um, like I said, that that sensation of never being able to completely understand how the hotel even works, like where they are in different spaces. Um, the number, you know, we see Danny riding through the halls and like he's upstairs, he's downstairs, he's, you know, moving through this space, he's moving through another space. It's difficult to, it's a labyrinth, right? And and it's meant to be. Um, it's difficult to figure out exactly where places are positioned mm-hmm. um, based upon, you know, the beginning walkthrough that that Jack does with, um, what's his name, Ullman, and, and then Danny navigating it and all of that. It's it's so good and yet is is very subtle like you don't realize you don't immediately like latch onto it to be like oh it's like a maze but it it contributes to that sense of discombobulation of like not really being able to locate yourself being mm-hmm. trapped in this hotel along with the rest of them and how alive the hotel itself is i really i did really like both the book and the um and the film for evoking the sense of place and the sense of a place itself being bad Mm -hmm. and not not even like the individual like an individual ghost or an individual entity but the the hotel itself having been driven insane it's the same thing that i really like about like the haunting of hill house um the the same kind of idea of not you know it's not this ghost who's kind of manipulating everything it is something within the nature of the place itself. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And, and this is one of those cases where I think that, I mean, I understand where King's coming from a little bit on, on um, his criticisms. I don't agree with him, but I understand his point. Um, And I do think that this is one of probably his best novel. Um, And I, I I think you were saying earlier and I agree that that there are things about the movie that I like better than the book. And there are things in the book that I I think were a little bit better uh, than in the movie. And it's, I think that's actually such a, a a unique quality because usually it's like, Oh, the book is way better or Nope. The movie is definitely better, but this is one where they both have their merits and they're both very good for what they are doing. Well, that's that's honestly something that I like about it. I like the fact that, you know, I I saw The Shining first, um, but then I remember reading the book and just really enjoying reading the book because it was different, because it was exploring different themes, yeah. um, because it was doing different, you know, including different elements of horror. I liked the fact that Kubrick kind of took the ideas and did something with the story that was different from what the book did with the story. And both of them work so well on their own. Um, you know, I don't think we have to say that like, oh, this one is better than the other one. It's like, they're both good. They, they, they just do different things and it works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And like, in the case of the, the novel, I think one of, one of the things that I do like, and I think this is exactly to the point of why, uh, King doesn't like the movie is that the, 
the book spends a lot more time in Jack's head. It spends a lot of time with him and with um, him questioning things with him, you know, panicking at his own um, violence and his own, his own um, growing madness. And, and I think that that is, is great, but I think also Jack Nicholson, um, I think just being batshit crazy in, (laughs) in the movie, I think worked really well. And I don't know that Nicholson himself could have sold this more introspective version of Jack Torrance. And I don't think that the movie needed to have that to, to work. Yeah, in, in some ways, I think we almost begin the film sort of in the middle of things in, yeah. in a certain sense, in terms of Jack's character arc. Um, Jack is already on edge, <laughs> like mm-hmm. from the first from the first moment he walks on screen. And some of that is the is the quality that Jack Nicholson brings. But like there there are those kind of arch kind of sinister moments where he's, you know, talking to Danny and he's just and Danny's like, would you ever hurt me or mommy? And there's just this pause and yeah. Nicholson and he like lifts his eyebrows in their really creepy way that he can do. <laughs> and, and all that's just like, I would never hurt you. It's like, don't believe him for a goddamn minute. Danny. Right. But I, I don't think that that's to the demerit of the film. No, we're not seeing the same kind of progression of that character, but it still works. We see a character on the edge from the very beginning and it takes very little to push him over. So it becomes more about what does push him over and about the interaction between him and his family and Danny and, um, and Wendy and how that all interacts and how that all is affected by the hotel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so it it's again, it's doing something very different from what the book is trying to do, which I think is fine. Right. Yeah. Well, and early on, we learn that he's an alcoholic who hasn't had a drink in five months. So mm-hmm. he's already on the edge because of that <laughs> before anything ever starts to happen to him, which is also possibly why he's so susceptible to the to the hotel, too. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the hotel, the way that Kubrick represents the hotel is very much that the hotel preys on the weaknesses of the people who come into it and particularly mm-hmm. on the men who come into it yeah um yeah. and that's what it's doing with him it finds its way into him basically um via via alcohol via kind of this so a certain degree of self-loathing and also a certain degree of self-pity um mm-hmm. and and sort of you know that that holds some of the the, one of the most chilling scenes in the bathroom where it's just like you they need to be corrected right that whole thing oh, yeah. is so understated and so sinister but really does show how you know the the whatever it is that the overlook is gets into the, sort of the hearts and souls and minds of people like jack mm-hmm. yep oh it's so good and it's on hbo max right now no it sorry is. it's on max right now <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it makes me so frustrated that they changed the color from purple to to blue because now in my menu, I'm like so used to looking for the purple logo because it was the only one. Now it's like in a sea of blue ones. (laughs) Throwing me off. Anyway. um, Yeah. So there are so many other adaptations. We have talked a lot longer than I thought we would about (laughs) Harry and the Shining. So I think that this is kind of... um, where we'll we'll wrap up but of course there's multiple versions of it there was the mm-hmm. miniseries in 1990 and then the two-part movies um 
that came out just a few years ago. And I think both of those have their merits and um, their good points and their bad points. I think it as a novel has some really great things to it and also some really terrible things to it. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I'll tell you where I stopped reading it. <laughs> I can guess. <laughs> Very glad that, you know, none of the films have attempted to go there. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I don't think they could, but no. also they haven't even tried. <laughs> yeah, they're just like, we're gonna just pretend that's not there. Anyway, so, yeah. Um, so we do have the the multiple versions of it um which i actually just rewatched the first one again last night and i was like i was realizing i don't remember the last time i watched it i might have only watched it the one time but it's i i think it's a good movie it's 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 fun i think the kids are amazing um the the original or the 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 recent one it mm-hmm. chapter one yeah, yeah. the mm-hmm. the miniseries is fun i think in a lot of ways but it's primarily due to tim curry being oh 100 yeah so creepy and yeah. wonderful mm-hmm. yeah so like, if you ever wanted to root for pennywise like <laughs> <laughs> yeah you will if you watch the limited series you will not root for pennywise even though bill skarsgård is so good um he's creepy as fuck <laughs> in, in uh, the 20 was 2016 version 2015 yeah. um yeah but of course then we also have you know uh, uh there he I, I don't know if you remember this but back in mostly in the 90s it was kind of this annual event where they would do like a stephen king limited ser- mini series and it would be four nights you know and these these big events for they did it for the stand um they did it for they actually did another version of the shining that way they did um um was there was another one rose rose matter or something like that rose red i don't remember what it's called um they did the langoliers they did a bunch of of these it was a really it was a really big thing they do this like once a year it'd be like what's the big stephen king event mini series this year and um so those were fun even if uh even if not always great um but like the stand was probably the most popular one um which has also been remade again as a limited series on i think that's on paramount plus and um yeah. And then of course there's the adaptations that are terrible or just that we just don't like too. So um like yeah. Christine. I will just give that. I'm sorry, John Carpenter, but it is not good. It's not. But that's also just like a dumb story. It's that well, that's the problem. It's really hard to make that scary. <laughs> like, well, I'm so also, afraid of a car. Also, I do I do want to close this out saying that one of the problems with Stephen King is again, like, like we said with Carrie, so many of his films and books and and all and adaptations of his films, of his uh, stories have been parodied. Yeah. So I had such difficulty watching Christine because all I could see was the Futurama episode, The Honkening. Um, <laughs> like that's all that I could see or think of was just that episode. The Shining, The Simpsons destroyed The Shining by doing such a good parody of The Shining. And even so, even in that one scene, you know, which is supposed to be so scary and is scary, where she's rooting through the pages and pages of all work and no play. All I can think of is Homer going like, I call I call it um, 
no TV and no beer make homers something something. (laughs) (laughs) And Marge saying things like, you know, ah, I will look at what he's writing. Perhaps it will provide a window into his madness. Oh, You've man. got the shining boy. The shining, don't you, yes. Don't you mean the shining? <laughs> Shh, do you want to get sued? <laughs> it's impossible. You can't watch that movie anymore. Nope. Nope. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I mean, there are lots of others. There's some that are good, some that are bad. They they keep now they're like remaking movies, like they did the Firestarter one last year, which I didn't see, but didn't hear anything good about it. Okay. Um. There was the Pet Cemetery remake, which was terrible. I mean, the the original movie was um, that's an interesting one, and I have some varied thoughts about that one. Um, but but um, I think that yeah, I, I think that the the remakes tend to in in many cases tend to like even just lose a little bit more of the. Mm-hmm. the things that are redeeming about the originals um which is certainly the case there i think it is is i'm trying to think if that's yeah i think it is the only one that has been made again that i think that the remake was successful um yeah. and and i think a lot of the reason for that is it wasn't trying to remake the the mini series it was just it was just being a new adaptation yeah. of the novel and um yeah so like yeah it's just such an interesting such an interesting thing where some of these are they're actually not bad some of them are terrible the dark tower is a terrible movie like don't watch it (laughs) just don't um uh mr harrigan's phone was just it could have been it could have been interesting not good it's on netflix it's it's not terrible but it's it's like it's it's kind of boring you know um and then we've got some some oh sorry I was gonna say there are some Netflix adaptations that I think are pretty good. Um, Nineteen Twenty Two was. I haven't watched that one. Is a is a very good one. Gerald's Game is a pretty pretty good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Gerald's Game was interesting. I have not seen. I think it's called In the Tall Grass. But like, so Net- Netflix has done some interesting ones actually. Mm, yeah, um, and then of course there's the Boogeyman, which is out now. Um, Salem's Lot. There's a new version of that coming. Um, maybe they'll just maybe they'll fix the problems with it. I don't know. I doubt it, but <laughs> maybe. And then um apparently just for you, Lauren, there is supposed to be a new version of Christine coming. <laughs> <laughs> I welcome someone trying to make that story scary. Like I, I'm just like at just at some level, I'm like, this is dumb. So only, here's only a boy would think of this. <laughs> so here's what I kind of think. So the person that's attached to direct it is Brian Fuller. And so I don't think that Brian Fuller would make a movie that's actually scary. I think he would make one that's that really um, digs into how silly and stupid this is. He's the guy who, maybe... did, who did Pushing Daisies and yeah. Wonderfalls and Dead Like Me. And um, yeah, so I think that he's the kind of guy who gets more into the 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 silliness of these kinds of stories maybe maybe like weirdly psychosexual or something like that <laughs> yeah, but, yeah yeah um so yeah there's also um there's another oh Chil- um what's the children of the corn 
Oh yeah, Children of the Corn. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, there's another movie that's supposed to be coming. Oh, James Wan is supposed to be directing one, which I would really love to see James Wan take on the Tommy Knockers. <laughs> I think that sounds fun. <laughs> so yeah, so some interesting things, potentially interesting things coming. What what I find fascinating too is the fact that like. All of these movies are all from different studios. I mean, it's like all over the place. Universal, Paramount, Lionsgate, Netflix, MGM. Like they're just kind of, you know, it's not just one studio buying up the rights to his stuff and like trying to make that kind of part Mm -hmm. of their brand. It's, It's just all over the place, which I think is cool. You get lots of different, lots of different takes on, yeah, on a very varied, uh, career. So. All right. Any final thoughts on adaptations by Stephen King? I mean, it's he's an interesting writer. Like I say, I have a very contentious relationship with his work. Um, <laughs> I I will I will be interested to see how he continues to be adapted. I would like uh, bookstores to have a broader range of horror novels, however, because I have to wade through two shelves of Stephen King novels to get to anything that isn't by Stephen King. I have nothing against Stephen King, but I've literally begun and not finished so many of his books. I'm not going to read more Stephen King. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, Yeah. I mean, my thing is the same as always. Just watch more movies. Even the ones that we don't like, you can still watch them. (laughs) You could be wrong, but it's all right. (laughs) Um, but that will uh, that will wrap things up for this week. We want to thank everyone for watching or listening, not watching. Um, and we want to especially thank our patrons who help keep the show going. They are Ollie, Brian, Connor, Estefania, Heather, James, Judy, Karen, Cariata, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, and Tao. Thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to join them, become a patron yourself, you can go to patreon.com slash citizen dame and sign up for as little as three bucks. You get early access to episodes, you get bonus episodes. We've got some stuff coming, uh, we promise. And um, your support helps us keep uh, keep our hosting fees paid and, and all of that good stuff. So, um, So we really appreciate that. Another way that you can support us too, by the way, is by giving us reviews and even if it's not a written review, just giving us like five stars on, on iTunes can really help out or whatever, uh, whichever podcast app you use to listen. If you could just help, um, help us out by giving us a rating that, uh, that draws more attention to the show. Also, just if you like this episode, sharing it is also really helpful too. Uh sharing it on your social media, sharing it with, with, you know, friends, text, text the link to your mom, you know, whatever. Um, all of that can really help us. We really want to help see the show grow and, um, and we need you to, to help us do that. So, um, yeah, but if you would like to, to support us in other ways, you can go to our Zazzle store or you can go to our Ko-Fi and and help us out there too you can also find us on social media um you can well our website where we have written reviews and i've got some essays coming this week about a couple of my favorite series finales um and that is citizendamepod.com you can email us citizendamepod at gmail.com and then you can also find us on on the socials on twitter and instagram we're on citizendamepod and letterboxd we are at citizendame and Lauren, where are you? I am on the various socials at LH Business. 
And I am on all the places at Karen M. Peterson. So thank you so much for listening and we will catch you next time. Meet Jack Torrance. I'm outlining a new writing project. He's a writer looking for inspiration. Lots of ideas. No good ones. Meet Danny. He's a kid looking for a dad. There's hardly anybody to play with around here. What's up, Doc? Jack just can't finish his book. I don't want to sound melodramatic, but there's no way to make it economically feasible. Here's to five miserable months. But now, sometimes what we need the most is just around the corner. I'm your new foster father. I'd do anything Climbing up on Salisbury Hill. I love it. I could see the city light. My heart going boom, boom, boom. Son, he said, grab your things. I'm going to take you home. Shining.